That's beautiful. Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. Turn to the end of John chapter 6 for today's sermon entitled, A Hard Teaching. A Hard Teaching. In fact, the passage that we're going to explore today is known to be, if not the hardest, certainly among the most difficult passages of Scripture to ever be studied. In fact, I dare say this is the harshest thing that Jesus ever says. If you'll stay with me today, when you leave here, you'll be able to understand this passage and even explain it to others. Let's look at the difficult saying. Turn there in your Bibles to John chapter 6 and verse 54. Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Well, how do the people respond when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, look at verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? These are hard words, Lord. How can anybody listen to something like that? And then look down at verse 67. Jesus now turns, not from the greater crowd of disciples, but now he turns to his 12 most intimate followers, and he says to them in verse 67, do you want to go away also, do you? I've said a hard thing. The others have left me. Now, do you want to leave too? Now's the time. There's the door. Of all the things that Jesus ever says, this is is among the most difficult. Turn back to chapter 6 and verse 1. We're going to have to work our way up to the end of chapter 6 by understanding the context in which Jesus makes these statements. The Reverend Thane Ford succeeded in providing what many church members cherish the most, a guarantee to be out by noon. In fact, you can be home by noon. The pastor of the First American Baptist Church in Pensacola, Florida, has created the compact 22-minute mini-sermon. The worship service from beginning to end lasts 22 minutes. I know I'm safe. Florida's way too far for you to drive, so we'll be okay. And 1,320 seconds, you get the whole service. The sermon is eight minutes. They do one song, one prayer, one scripture, and away we go. The pastor said his thinking went like this. It's for those people, their, their parents made them go to church all their lives, and, well, they, they really don't have a stomach for it anymore, or, or maybe it's a way to introduce religion to people in small doses. Well, it may be a creative way to reach the unchurched, but what kind of no-commitment commitment does this communicate to the community? Well, there is indeed a real temptation for the church, especially in Western cultures like our own, to try to lighten the load for would-be possible followers of Christ. But that's not what we see in this passage, is it? Despite Jesus' high demands for discipleship, we want to make it in America easy to follow Jesus. 
We certainly should not be surprised that our culture wants to do that because, well, we're the culture of light mayo and no fat Sundays and sweatless exercise. And so we also want easy church, easy discipleship. We want light Christianity. We want the gospel. We want grace, but no judgment. We want forgiveness, but no real repentance. We want church membership, but no baptism. We want heaven, but please no one ever mention hell. Light church, Everything you wanted in church and less is what we serve today. We, before we sell our soul to dumb down discipleship, we must first read this passage where we hear the hardest words our Lord ever uttered. Well, let's look at the background. The only way to understand this passage is to understand the context clues. Could you imagine going into a blockbuster movie for the last 15 minutes, you don't know the characters, you don't know the setting, you don't know the scene, and that's all you see is the last 15 minutes, and you don't know anything about the movie, and everybody gets it, but you don't. Well, just reading the end of John 6 is like walking into the end of a blockbuster. You're not going to get it. So we've got to start back at chapter 6 and verse 1 and set the scene. Verses 1 through 15 is the feeding of the 5,000. 1 through 15, the feeding of the 5,000. Did you know this is the only miracle in the New Testament that is recorded in all four Gospels except one other miracle? This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels except for one other miracle. And... That's the resurrection, of course. So outside of the resurrection, this is the most recorded miracle that Jesus ever performs. Well, here we learn that Jesus is the host, and he's providing for them true food that satisfies the soul's longing for intimacy with God. They cross the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus' and disciples, look at verse 3 of chapter 6, Jesus went up on a mountain. Now, the picture of the mountain is to remind you of another liberator, deliverer, who went to a mountain, and of course, that's Moses. And what happened after Moses was on the mountain? Well, it's Passover time, and then we have the Exodus, and we have Moses providing what? Manna, bread from heaven. So, Jesus multiplying the loaves of bread is a communication that he's the new Moses providing, like the Messiah was supposed to, the new manna from heaven. So we have a, a new Moses, a new liberator, Jesus. We have a new exodus. We are now freed from sin and death, not just Pharaoh. And then we have new bread from heaven, and that bread is Jesus himself. Now, Jesus tests Philip. Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip says, Lord, if I worked half a year, I couldn't feed all these people. Andrew says, well, here's a lad. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. And Andrew realizes that that little lunch the lad has is completely insufficient with so many mouths to feed. But Jesus says, have them sit down. He begins to pass out the bread and the fish and in verse 14, look at verse 14 of chapter 6. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, 
This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Now you remember that miracles in John's gospel are called signs, like the changing of the water to wine at Cana. It is a sign, and the sign is something that points beyond itself. This feeding of the 5,000 is another sign in John's gospel that points to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So the people see this sign, and they say, he must be the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Deuteronomy 18.15, we're told there's going to be another prophet the prophet after Moses. You remember John the Baptist had said, I'm not the Messiah and I'm not the prophet. Well, they think that Jesus might be the one to come who follows Moses, the prophet. Well, they're so excited. Look at verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus feeds this multitude. They say, here's our Messiah. He's the one who's going to bring the new bread from heaven. And they want to take him by force, put him on their shoulders, carry him through the crowd, declare, here is the new king. He will get rid of Rome. Why, he can feed us by the multiplication of manna by his hands. But Jesus doesn't want an earthly kingdom. And so Jesus slips away to escape the crowd who wants to make him an earthly, political Messiah to overthrow Rome. Verses 16 through 21, walking on water. Now, this is that little story found in Matthew and Mark, and the, the highlight comes in verse 20. You remember, they get in the boat, they go to the other side of the sea, uh, of the lake, and they go the other side, and Jesus doesn't go, and, and Jesus, they look up, the storm comes, and Jesus is walking across the water, and they are terrified in the boat. I mean, wouldn't you be? You look out, and the guy's walking on the water, and Jesus says, it is I, and they receive him into the boat. The it is I is the language of Exodus 3, when Moses says, when I go and I tell the people you've sent me, to set them free? Or Pharaoh asked me, who do I say? What God has sent me? You tell them, I am the God who is. That's the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of being, has sent you. So Jesus hints that he and Yahweh are one. I am. In verses 22 through 40, we have the bread of heaven. This bread of heaven, where Jesus says that he is the bread of life. So having fed the 5,000 and their families, now Jesus puts it in context and says, there's better bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Well, look at verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Verse 29, And Jesus answered and said to them, 
This is the work of God that you believe and the one that he has sent. Look at verse 30. And they said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, therefore, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Well, they've tried to take Jesus for their own political purposes because he could multiply the manna. And Jesus tells them, it's not that kind of bread. It's not that kind of kingdom. There's another kind of bread. Well, if you eat this kind of bread, the kind I multiplied, you will, it'll, you'll still perish. But I want to give you another kind of bread, and you'll never hunger again. Doesn't that remind you? of chapter 4 when he sat at the well and Jesus was thirsty and he said to the woman, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask me and I would give you what? A different kind of water, living water. Well, they understand just like the woman thought there was some way she would never have to retrieve water again. They say, give us this bread Look at verse 34, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. We'll never be hungry again. And Jesus says, it's not that kind of bread. I am the bread of life. That's the first I am saying in John's gospel. In fact, as you go through John's gospel, you have these I am sayings where it's the, the name of Yahweh, the name of God, I am, and then he adds a description. This is the first one, I am the bread of life. And each time we have an I am saying, we're giving a piece, a description about the person of the Lord. True spiritual nourishment, not earthly bread, is a kind that will sustain you forever. In fact, he says, he's the one who has come down out of heaven. In fact, he, he says this over and over again. Look at verse 41. Jesus, the Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Seven times in this chapter, seven times, Jesus says, I came down out of heaven. He wants them to know central to the message of this passage is that he is the Messiah. He has been sent. He has come down from heaven. He has left glory. I have come down out of heaven. Uh, there's something else he says, not seven times, but three times in this chapter. He says, look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
In verse 40, verse 44, and verse 54, Jesus says, on the last day, I will raise up those who believe in me. Congregation, this is the very power of the gospel. It's not just a spiritual truth. The power of the gospel is not something that's untouchable. He says, I have come down out of heaven, and on that last day, those who believe in me, those with whom I share intimacy, I will raise them up. Their graves will be empty. I will raise them up with me. The gospel is tangible. It's touchable. I will raise up their dead bodies and transform them into the glory of the resurrection body. I will raise them up. Verses 41 through 51, we have words to the Jews. Words to the Jews. The Jews are grumbling, verse 41, that he said he's come down out of heaven. In fact, they say in verse 42, now we know him. We know he's the son of Joseph. We know his father. We know his mother. How can he say we have, he has come down out of heaven? You see, with their grumbling, they have preserved a succession of unbelief. These Jews, like the other Jews, didn't believe the prophets when the prophets were sent. As they rejected all the other prophets, they have rejected the very Son of God, the Messiah. With this grumbling, the Jews preserve a genuine succession of of unbelief. Well, verses 48 through 50, Jesus reiterates again, look, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This bread which comes down out of heaven, one may eat it and will not die. I am the living bread, he says, verse 51. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Yeah, this language came down. It's, it's, a, it's a past tense, aorist tense. It means it happened one time. The incarnation, the Bethlehem baby, he came down. It happened in a moment in time. And then those who eat, it's, it's language for believing in Jesus. Those who believe in me is to eat. And this language of flesh is language of his crucifixion. Now, it's true that when, this, that when Jesus is speaking this, that the Lord's Supper has not yet been instituted. We're not that far in the story. But when it is written, the Lord's Supper already existed, you see. So, you can't read this without seeing the hint of the Lord's Supper. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this blood, whoever receives my crucifixion, he receives the bread of life, and he will live forever. Verses 52 to 59, eating flesh and drinking blood. Well, they begin to grumble. He speaks in verse 52 through 54 about 
My flesh is true food, verse 55. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The eating the flesh and drinking the blood is the language of belief, of taking on the story of the crucifixion. It is the language of intimacy. I remain in him, he remains in me. It's the language of abiding. To eat the flesh, to drink the blood, is to say yes to the story of Jesus, to Jesus as the Messiah, and to have intimacy with him. Well, the Jews, if they've been offended before, they are really offended now. They're really bothered by what Jesus is saying because they were not allowed. They were forbidden to eat blood. It's a difficult, difficult statement. It moves beyond the metaphor of flesh and blood to true intimacy. And Jesus says in verse 56, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I remain in him. Jesus is the living bread, verse 51. The Father is the living Father, verse 57. But now rejecting the flesh and the blood, you reject the Messiah, the one sent by God himself. Verses 60 through 71, at the end, words to his disciples. Look at verse 60. Words to the disciples, 60 through 71. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this saying about eating flesh and drinking blood, they say, man, this is a, this is a difficult statement. Who can hear this? Let me translate it for you this way. He's saying, you can't halfway follow me. It is full intimacy. It is full commitment. You know, there were various disciples in the day. This word disciple here means more than the 12. There were some who just wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. And so they were could be, should be, might be disciples. They are following him at a distance. There are others who have left friends and family to follow him, and they had this mixed audience of those who are curious about the Christ and those who are committed to the Christ. And Jesus says a harsh thing as if to say, if you're going to follow me, you must fully believe and fully have intimacy with me. Intimacy so described as eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and they say, man, this is hard. Jesus says, 61, does this cause you to stumble? What if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you saw me go back to the glory of heaven? He says, verse 64, some of you do not believe. Now, we read this passage, and we're bothered because it's difficult. It wasn't that they didn't understand. That's not the problem. The problem was they did understand. You see? The problem was they realized that the Christ was calling for full commitment. And they were just sort of curious and wanted to check him out. 
they didn't want to become that intimate with him. You see that? They just wanted to show their curiosity. I agree with Mark Twain who said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. They understood. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be a different kind of kingdom. You're not going to put me on your shoulders and declare me to be king so I can pass out loaves of bread every day. It is a spiritual bread, and it will take total intimacy, full belief, and total commitment. And they say, wait a minute. We weren't ready to go that far with you, Lord. Well, his own disciples have something of the same reaction. Look at verse 66. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. I'm done with this guy. I'm done with that. Count me out on that deal. I wanted to be set free from Rome. I want some free bread every day. I wanted an easy ride, and this guy's asking for total commitment. He wants a flesh and blood kind of commitment. Count me out. I'm not willing to go that far, Rabbi. And Jesus looks to the twelve and says, you do not want to go away too, do you? You see that? Sometimes I fear we, we try to make following Christ look too easy, make church too comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about this. In fact, he turns to the 12 and says, if you want out of the boat, now's the time to get out of the boat. I'm only looking for the totally committed. It's the only way Jesus calls disciples is totally committed. You cannot be a halfway follower of Jesus. Well, look how Peter responds. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the eternal words of life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you want to leave too? Go now. There's the door. I know it's hard. I'm not making it easy. Peter. So insightful at this moment. But if we don't follow you, who are we going to follow? For you alone have the key to eternity. You alone have the eternal words of life. And we have come to believe totally. And we have come to know that you are the Messiah called the Holy One of Israel. See, the passage isn't that hard. You put it in the setting of bread and feeding 5,000 and him saying, I'm the bread of life. And the problem isn't that we can't understand John 6. The problem is that we do. 
understand John 6. So what about you? Are you all in? You can't halfway follow Jesus. Are you totally committed? Will you embrace what he's done on the cross? Will you embrace his broken body and his shed blood? For if you do, if you believe in him as the one come down from heaven seven times, then if you do, and only if you do, he will raise you up on that day. Let us pray. Oh, Father, these are hard words from Jesus. It is a total call to commitment. We cannot flirt with the Messiah. We cannot be curious only about our Lord. The one who goes to the cross was all in. And he demands the same of those who follow him. I pray today, oh God, if there's someone who would proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be her day, today would be his day to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. To count the cost and realize the commitment. Maybe there are others who would come and be a part of this church that's going to preach all the words, even the hard words of Jesus, as a place to live, worship, and serve. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.